Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I have an absolute pleasure today of welcoming uh, Colchin. So it's Professor Colchin, MBE, just to give me his correct title. Carl, I've known and followed and watched for, for many, many years. He, he's slightly older than me, but I feel as if he's 100 years old because of the amount of things that he's done. So if we, if we can, we're going to look at your professional career, Carl, and we're going to talk about that and things like that. I'm going to give you the opportunity of introducing yourself. But I think for me, it's, it, it's something, the social history and Birmingham and all around Birmingham, the region, the manufacturing, everything you say, everything you do works for me. And, and, and I'm delighted that you've agreed to come on to the downtown business den, Birmingham, to talk about Birmingham, mine and your favourite subject, I think. Well, thanks for inviting me and hello to everybody this afternoon. Carl, just, I mean, you're, you were born at uh, Sorrento Hospital. 1956. Now, everybody get your pen out. 6th of September is his birthday. So <laughs> fairly key birthdays coming up and things like that. Your, your dad worked in the in the city, you know, you're around the Sparkbrook, the inner sort of suburbs of Birmingham. Your dad was a bookmaker. You became a bookmaker. Uh, and then one of my first questions is going to be, how come you're not doing that now? And how come you managed to go to Mosley School and end up at Birmingham University? But before we do that, Take a minute or two of just introduce yourself and if you can tell us yeah. a little brief about your history and what made it work for you as a child. Yeah. That would be incredible. Thank I'll you. I'd be delighted to. Sunday afternoons, shout out to me. I mean, when we were growing up, Paul, I mean, you are younger than me, but I think you will remember six o'clock, sing something simple, seven o'clock, sing yeah. something simple. Sunday was over. That's all we had was one hour of picking your pots. But Sunday afternoons were special in our house. And I think in a lot of houses of people from a working class background, because families met up and they'd start to talk about the old end, mum from Aston, Aston Cross, dad from Sparkbrook, my nan, granddad Perry was from Highgate, and that's Auntie Wynne, there'd be uncles popping in, great uncles and great aunts. And from an early age, Paul, it, I was surrounded by history. I didn't realise it at the time. Mm. Now I do, how important those family stories were. I was fortunate in that dad was a bookmaker. And so, excuse me, I'll turn that phone off. <laughs> I'll carry on talking dad, for you. Dad, dad, so was dad, a was, dad was a bookmaker. Yeah, so the old man was a bookie, mum was a factory worker. They did quite well, well, dad did very well. So me and my brother, we grew up better off. Uh, but do, you want grab, dad, do you want to sort your phone out, Carl? I don't know what's up. No, my wife's got it. It's all right. Okay. So, all we, right. Uh, we grew up well off economically. Yeah. Dad was doing very well with the bookmaking. But mum and dad were fiercely proud to be working class. All mum's family still lived either in back to back houses or later on they were moved to Castle Vale, High Pays, places where to a big council estate, King Sandy. Yeah. That side were better off economically, but were still fiercely proud to be working class. So I was very fortunate, Paul, in that I had, I didn't grow up poor, far from it, but mm. my mum and dad drilled it into me, my nan, my aunt, dad, Perry, aunties, to be proud of where we come from and how fortunate I was to be the first one in my family to be able to go to a grammar school, to be able to stay on at school past 16, to get a university education. I was two generations removed from the poverty that my nan and my granddad's grew up in, in the 1900s. I mean, so to come I realised how lucky I was. 
to, do, to go to a grammar school is incredible. So you, you're academically bright enough at that time and your parents had the foresight to push you in that direction. So dad, as a bookmaker, making a good living, suddenly thought, now I'm going to look at my son. I want something different from my son, which was... Yeah. I, I think the whole family did, not just mum and dad, we're, we're from a very big and strong extended family. Yeah. Nan was still working in a factory, Benton and Stone in Aston. My auntie Wynne worked at the Midland Wheel in Avenue Road. My uncle George was at, worked in a scrapyard in Adderley Street. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. By, by where you come from, Paul. Mm. So, although we grew up better off economically, it was that belief that you owe something back. That I had aunts and uncles on my nan's side who passed the 11 plus but couldn't afford to go to grammar school because of the cost of the books, the cost of the uniform, but also the loss of wage at 14. So, yeah. there I am, I take the, take the 11 plus and I go to Mosey Grammar, which was up the road from where we live, and the first day, I was in short trousers because a lot of us were still wearing short trousers in them days till we were 13. I had a cap on and our nan, so proud that our car was going to grammar school, had bought me, everybody else is doing, with a, a knapsack on the yeah, back. Yeah. Our nan bought me a briefcase. It was half the size of me. I was only a little kid. It was half the size. But because she was so proud, she used to sit doing my Latin homework with me. And I'd be yeah. going, nan, you had the book. I've got to read these out. I'll be going, I'm oh, a master, 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 master. And eventually I had that again. I won't tell you what I said, because it was a proper Aston woman. <laughs> they kept me totally and utterly grounded, as does my wife, Kay, who's on a big council state in Dublin. They kept me grounded and made me realise how fortunate I was. And I wanted, as I grew older, I felt it important that we start to fight for those opportunities, whether it be academic or vocational for because yeah. I've got no skills in their hands. I admire people with skills. All my family were factory workers on my side. My wife Kay's a, a hairdresser. I admire the skills that they've got. I haven't got no other skills. I think I think for me, uh, we both come from a similar background where obviously my older sister Deborah was the first one to go to university. I couldn't go to university. I, I, was, I was dyslexic, but we couldn't afford it. So it was Deborah was seemed to, was the brightest. She went to university, and she's done okay for herself. You know that kind of yes. stuff. <laughs> the region and everything else. I think me and you uh, have so much in common, and, and and the way that we were talking this afternoon is like it's me and you going to be sitting in a pub having yeah. a point together, talking about the region and, and talking about some of the things going on. There's only one thing that we really disagree with, isn't there? <laughs> now, unfortunately, you have the well, displeasure or pleasure, whichever way you want to go with being a villain. Now, <laughs> you described the most ambassadorial, you know, representation of Birmingham, your knowledge, what you've done, your, your attributes, your contributions to the city. It's fantastic. But I understand when you step into the villa ground or, you know, onto the terraces, something happens to your car, doesn't it? Yeah, the old man used to say when he was alive, he says, I called you the most tolerant, inclusive, embracing person I've ever met until it comes to walking through the turnstiles at Villa Park. He said he's got something twirled your head around and you turn into <laughs> this rapid Clarence and Blue bigot. <laughs> I only see Clarence and Blue. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the amusing interactions we've had over the last few months, we created a mural in Big Breath <laughs> and, you, and you came and spoke and you spoke eloquently. You held an audience of, you know, the chief, uh, chief of police was there, Dave Thompson. Few councillors, Ian Wood was there, and everybody else was there. 
you couldn't have heard a pin drop. So you, you, you were talking fantastically. And then I said that we'd been invited to, to do something at the Blues Ground, all go into charity. Uh, and you just went, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll support you a million percent for your charitable contributions. I'm not stepping foot in that ground. Or well, I, I couldn't do it for two reasons. One, because it wouldn't be right as a Villa fan doing that. I stick yeah. up for Birmingham. Outside, I, I want the Blues to do well, Paul. I want okay. the Blues to do well, the Albion to do well, Wolves, Wolves, yeah, yeah. Commentary, yeah. all the West Midlands teams. But I think it's really, football is a passion and it's about the family. And yeah. I, I went down the match, the first time I went to the match was with our mum and our nan. And the second match, we lost 6 2 at home to Chelsea. September 1966, I was nine, just before my 10th birthday. Yeah. And the first fight I ever seen was our nan down the villa. Four foot 11 of <laughs> fighting Aston. Four foot 11 of fighting Aston. And the way back we were playing Sheffield United was walking past, it was nil nil. And in them days, we were still standing together, home and away. And took our kids' hat off, threw it on the floor, and I turned, I turned around. That's my granddaughter, I'm so sorry. Oh, <laughs> so bless And she threw it on the floor, he threw it on the floor, and then turned around and hit him with a right hook, and that was that. So we might be able to get £250 for that show on Saturday night with something else going wrong. We've had your phone, we've had the granddaughter in, what else? I think... Um, uh, Tina, uh, Tina just mentioned, I expect a lot of viewers right now, including me, was born in Sorrento Materia yeah. Hospital, which is fabulous. And it's just a good point now, just to say to our viewers, if you've got any questions or anything like that for me, for Carl, or anything you want us to debate, just put it up on the screen and we'll give you our honest opinions about things. We'll leave football there, Carl. So I want to talk about your education. Just quickly, can I tell Tina where the name Sorrento comes from? Because obviously there were, it was a big old Victorian house yeah, yeah, on yeah. the going into Mosley before St Mary's Road, Wakeley Road, and the family had put it up. They loved holidaying in Sorrento. Oh, okay. So that took over as a maternity hospital. That's what it got called, and then it took over other houses nearby. And it just grew and grew and grew. Grew and grew and grew. Well, I was I was Loveday Street. That's where uh, oh. it was supposed to be. Mum went there and unfortunately I was ended up born on the floor of a back-to-back -back house in Bulls Degree. Oh, yeah. So you had a little bit of a better... <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a proper city kid, you beat me on that one. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about your education. So grammar school and in Birmingham University. Yeah. What was it like going to Birmingham University as a working class lad? It, that was a well, shock to the system. First of all, I went to Manchester. Okay. But I only lasted two and a half weeks. Right. Uh, I wasn't going to go to university. From the age of 13, I'd worked in the betting shops in Sparkbrook. Again, that added to my love of social history, particularly the spoken word of working class people. Listening okay. to stories that the older punters told me mm. about not only themselves and their families, but about my great granny and granddad, who many of them knew. I mm. worked in the business from the age of 13. We had two armed robberies. I had a, a, a pistol on my head the first time, a starting pistol, my temple the second time. Dad was determined that, and mom and all my aunts and uncles, we've got to go to university. So I said, no, I ain't going. So I didn't put Birmingham down. I okay. put Manchester, I put Leeds, I put York, because I was being, being bloody minded, I suppose, Paul, saying I ain't going to go to university, mm -hmm. I'm going to work. And the results come through and they were good. And on the Sunday, as I should have gone, and I was before I should have gone, I was still moaning, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go. And my great uncle George turned up, and he'd been in the 2nd Battalion SAS. 
in the Second World War behind right. enemy lines after Normandy, you know, when the, the big push was on against the, the yeah. German army. He had hands like shovels and he used to scrape bits of scorf out of him working in the scrapyard. My great uncle Bill was a polisher, could hardly breathe because of all the metal on his lungs. Our nan, finger missing there, her index finger missing, lost it in a power press, mum and dad, and they all started berating me. What are you doing? We've worked all our lives so that somebody in the future would have an opportunity to do something different. And I realised it really brought it home to me how important it was not just for me to go to university, but it was for my family. Went to Manchester, I was in a halls of residence, and the tutors were very good, but it was alien, Paul, it was alien. It was like yeah. uh, Tom Brown's school days. It was a big, old-fashioned, all you had to wear a waterboard and cake yeah. to, to dinner, tea of, a, of an evening. Um, and I was very homesick, very homesick. Yeah. Everything I wanted in life was in Birmingham. And I came back the second week and the villa was playing us home. I came back on the evening, met me mates in the hole in the wall in Dale End, met mum and dad They had a yeah. shock of the lies. What are you doing back home? I explained how I was. And I was very fortunate again, Paul. I was very fortunate again. In that when I went back to Manchester, I said, I'm leaving. The tutor said, I think you should stay at university. I'm going to see if I can arrange an interview at Birmingham. And I was so lucky that I got an interview at Birmingham and was accepted. Because I wouldn't have stayed on. I mean, that did us a fantastic favour, really, that little twist. You ended up at Birmingham University. Birmingham University was interesting because, you know, 1990, okay, you were, uh, you were around Birmingham University. You were contracted to lecture at Birmingham University, wasn't you? Yeah. That was a major gig, that was. That was a big thing, wasn't it? To it do was that? a big gig because I'd been out of work for a long time in the 80s. I didn't realise that. Yeah, okay. we sold the betting shops in 84. Yeah. We had another armed robbery. That was the second one I was telling you about with a, a starting pistol at the temple. And the old man decided, you know, we're, we're getting out now. And we sold up. I was finishing my doctorate. I, uh, I ended up having to sign on the dole. It was a very upsetting period of my life. My wife was brilliant. Kay kept us going. Uh, she kept me going mentally and emotionally as well. Mm -hmm. I, hated, I hated signing on. Um, as I think 99.9% .9 of men and women do. Yeah. Uh, found it very, very hard. They sent me, I got my doctorate in that time. They sent me on a retraining course and I just got my PhD. Uh, <laughs> and the bloke said, this is a bit daft. He says, you've just got your PhD. He said, have you ever thought of going on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme? I remember that. <laughs> so I said, well, what is it? He says, well, you get £40 a week tax-free. We'll knock your money up through... Um, I suppose they call it universal credit today, but then it would be equivalent to social security. So what you were on on the dole. I just started doing adult education classes for the Birmingham University, what they used to call extramurals department, Paul, yeah. and the Workers' Educational Association. Brilliant organisation that reaches yeah. out to people and gave me my first chance. But out of, if you were earning, say, 15 or £20 a week in them days on the dole, they took 15 of it. You could only keep a fiver. So the dis there was a disincentive to buy mm. work. So the this guy from, from the uh, Department of Employment says, if you go on the Enterprise landscape, you can then keep what you're earning teaching-wise. Uh, so I had a, a year on that, <clears throat> a couple of years part-time employed. I got a, a, a part-time job at Fircroft Adult Education College in Surrey Oak. Learned a huge amount there, Paul, from students. Because I think as a teacher, you're always learning. 
course, deeply course. learning from adult education students, signing on again then in the long summer vacation. Uh, finally, got a, a, a half-time role there. And then in 1990, got a two-year temporary contract at the University of Birmingham. So that was a massive thing after six years of being on the dole, being yeah. on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, and then being really part-time working, signing on in the summer, etc. Yeah. And yet it was but, a in, big thing. but in 2002, you became a full professor at the university, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. You know, and you gave them, I'm going to, I'm going to say, 32 years worth of service. Was it around that? Yeah, well, I got my degree there. I did my doctorate there. Yeah. Um, I started part-time teaching there in 88. Uh, temporary job, 1990. Full-time job, 92. And then uh, finished there a few years ago. So it was during the Blitz you were training. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be cheeky. <laughs> and you know that? But I mean, yeah, yeah, the, the social history, isn't it? So your uh, years of experience and things like that and, and your academic interest has come from what? what why have you got the years, 1860, 1960, if that's right? Yeah. The, yeah. What, why, why that era? I think a couple of things there, Paul, that the, the period of unemployment, I would not want to go back to it again. Yeah. And people who haven't been out of work need to understand the hardships, we were lucky, I was lucky, I got a wife, I got mum and dad to come over, we were, mum and dad were well off, do you know what I mean? So I didn't, we, mm. we struggled, but it wasn't, it was nowhere near poverty, nowhere near, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, dream of yeah. saying that, but it was tough, and it gave me an appreciation of the need to understand real hardship, and that reinforced what really I was learning from my mum and dad and my nan and granddad, our mum, nan, Granddad telling me about their times, having daily mail boots, would have been oh, barefooted. Got it. So it, granddad. It, it was that period of time that you, you, you experienced, you lived, that really caught your imagination. Yes, it, 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 you that. I was already very keen on the late 19th, early 20th centuries through the family stories. <coughs> yeah. Because through the family, my granddad, my dad's dad, my granddad Chin was born in 1891. Okay. My granddad Perry on my mum's side was 1906, our nan was 1914. So mm. I, I remember sitting on our granddad's knee. I, was, mm. I, I remember a Victorian. Yeah, so I was yeah. back into that late period. But being out of work made me write, I think, I hope, I really hope this, with more empathy and more passion for poorer people who have been excluded, have been left out, who are looked down on and should not be looked down on. I think for me, you, you, your, your passion has never gone. I think you're the type of man, if you won the lottery, you'd probably give majority of it away and you'd never lose your way and everything like that. You are what you are down to the core, which is fantastic. I'm, I'm looking at 2002. You've just become a full professor yeah. at a university, an incredible university, you know, pretty much a, I, I use this term quite often, jewelry in the crown for Birmingham and things yeah. like that. Clearly, I'm going to advocate BCU, you know, because obviously I'm very biased towards BCU. We'll, we'll, we'll duel on that point a little bit later on. But 2002 was a particularly good year for you, wasn't it? You know, yeah. it was a good vintage year. Something else happened to you. Yeah, you no. Give, God. Yeah, well, you, you were presented with the opportunity of uh, an MBE. Uh, clearly, you took that and you become Carl Chin MBE. How did that feel? What, what was that like? It was, a, it was an amazing thing. Mum and Dad were very strong, and the family I belonged to, very strong royalists. Yeah. And 
to get a letter from Her Majesty's, you know, the Queen was really, really important for them. Yeah. I felt that the MB wasn't just for me. It was for services to local history. I could not have been involved with the history that I write if I hadn't learned from older people. So Kay said to me, she says, Carl, this isn't just for you. I said, no, I know, Bab. I said, it's for the people I belong to. They don't, but I don't, I, they're not my people, Paul. I belong to them. Yeah, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and she says, why don't you announce on the radio that you're going to have a drink at the old Crown in Derry and people could come along? And it was Boston. Well, uh, well over 100 people turned up. Uh, the Burning of Irish Piper drums piped outside. And we had a celebration. It wasn't just for me. Yeah. That's and I still regard that MBE as, as. Yeah. It's it. about local history. Our history. <clears throat> I'll remember that point. I think that's wonderful. I think what I, what I want to talk about now, I was, obviously I've known you and I've followed you for many, many years. I've been to quite a few book launches and stuff like that. I've, the, 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 quiet, the quiet one sitting in the back watching you, listening to you, talking to you. Um, my concern was I checked last week about how many books you'd written and how many books you'd launched. Now, knowing you, I, I rechecked at 12 o'clock today because <laughs> between last week and this week, I thought you might have knocked a couple out, you know, that kind of stuff. You know what it's like. So we're at 33 books now, and I'm looking at you for confirmation of that. <laughs> yeah. But I understand that, um, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I truly hope that we do, that we hit 100 books coming from you. But we've got a new book coming out, haven't we? Yeah. And a new book that's coming out, it's all about, I'm going to do this because you're going to like this book. <laughs> all about the Peaky Blinders, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, the book I wrote last year, or was published last year, Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, I wanted to look at the, the realities. The series has been brilliant for Birmingham. Whether yeah. you like the series or not, whether it, it grabs you or not, you cannot deny that it's done, done something very special for Birmingham. Of course it has. And it's drawn attention to us. But there's a reality behind yeah. the drama. And the reality is bloody. It's brutal. It's yeah. violent. It's not romantic. And I think it's really important to get that message over, especially I do a lot of teaching of local history projects in schools. And a lot of youngsters think that gangs, not the, necessarily the people Blind, but gangs full stop, is something glamorous. It's not glamorous, it's dirty and vile. And I think it's really important to, to show the reality. So the book last year was really looking at the Peaky Blinders who were put down in the early 20th century, before the First World War. The follow-up I've just finished looks at their legacy. And the legacy was England's first major gangland war. Men who had been Peaky Blinders formed a gang, a loose gang, a real conglomeration, a jumble of little groups of five and six called the Birmingham Gang. And they blackmailed bookmakers. And they uh, also intimidated race goers. They pickpocketed. And they were horrible men. And they controlled the rackets on the race courses in England and took over down south. That led them into a gangland war with the Sabinis. Darby Sabini's featured in the series. He yeah, was an yeah, Anglo-Italian, yeah. not Italian. He saw himself as an Englishman. And it led to England's first major gangland war. So that's what I've just finished writing about. Brilliant. And I'm going to sell your books for you because you've missed one <laughs> point. Your last book has now been translated into how many different languages? Uh, I think it's eight now different languages. It's uh, just had the Spanish edition, the Italian edition. 
Portuguese, Polish, Dutch, and there's a few others. So I'm going to say that you've got more books than there are Witherspoons in Birmingham, which is quite, <laughs> a, quite an accolade for us to have. What's really interesting now is Peaky Blinders has been fascinated and, and I've seen various different reports about what it's brought to the economy and what it's done for us and things like that, which is really interesting. And I'm also looking at all these questions and points that are flying through. So I'm going to, okay. I'm going to jump about and things like That's that. Fine, I'm going to look at this. Were a couple of things there. So in no particular order, Paul Turner made a point about Carl Eddie's in the history of the West Bromwich Building yeah. Society. Fantastic record of a great black country institution. Joe Moxley, great uh, point. How do both? Uh, how do you both think universities can better increase the widening participation yeah. of underrepresented and disadvantaged uh, students attending Final universities and seeding once there? Yeah, it's really important and, and it, is. It, it is like coming back to the question you asked earlier it was like an alien environment because you're talking a different language and i'll give you an example of that i was given a, a, a seminar a talk to some distinguished professors i was just studying for my doctorate and i pronounced this man's name b-a-g-e-h-o-t as baggy hot and this bloke at the end took great pleasure in demeaning me say by the way it's not baggy hot it's badgett and i i haven't got a clue nobody had taught me that so I think the point was it Jones just made about widening participation. Universities talk a lot, particularly the Redbrick universities, Oxford and Cambridge on top of those, about opening it up. Lots more needs to be done. Need to be going into communities. Yeah. Not start sitting there and waiting for the community to come to you. We need to get out. I'm no longer associated with the University of Birmingham, but all of these universities need to get into communities and they need to start. They've been very successful with regard to widening participation uh, as lecturers with gender. But there's still a massive, massive problem with not widening participation with right to class and ethnicity and to okay. race. I'm going to sell BCU to you now because 60% of BCU mm. students are from Birmingham, 20% are from the very local vicinity and the, the other 20, 10% are from overseas, 10% are others. So B BCU is the yeah. university for the city, which is quite interesting. A couple of other things. I don't that. Uh, Paolo says, uh, great, uh, great afternoon, Paul, Professor Paul, Professor Thank Carl. You. Thank you for your talk. Could you both please advocate the preservation of the historic Eagle and Sun pub on oh. Banbury Street under threat of the demolition yes. of the, you know, he says from the pointless new HS2. I'll disagree with that. We need HS2. But having said that, you know, I've got to agree with Paolo, though, Paul, because we've we lost need the fox to look and grapes. At that. Incredible pub. We lost the fox and grapes. Yeah. Why did they knock that down? It's just a pile of rubble. That building went back to the late 18th century. I don't think there's anything else left now with historical there. The England Sun, superb building, put up in the later 19th century, and yeah. you can see inside it's a late 19th century public house. We, we lose too much. We bow down before development in Birmingham instead of putting our foot down and saying, yeah, we like this idea, but you've got to include this as well. And we've got to be more affirmative. We've got to be more uh, strong in our, uh, more assertive. I think it needs to be picked up and put in the Black Country uh, Museum or something like that, doesn't it? You well, know, there's enough. Keep it there and open it up as a pub. I don't know whether it's in the way of HS2, whether we can move it a couple of inches over in, in London yeah. by the time it gets there. 
we'll, we'll take that discussion somewhere else. But the Eagle and Tony is an incredibly important and beautiful building, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, Cole Chin edited that. One of the, so Emma Love, one of my origi original Mr. Birmingham photography portraits, gents. Good to see you there for that one. Uh, next one, Petro. Yeah, the BCU massive. So we're one nil to us. So Definitely. BCU's blue, so I'm going to have BCU as blue. You've got red as Birmingham University. We're one nil up the blues. Let's see how we end up by the end of the day. I, I, I think you will stay one nil up, and more than that, mate, because <laughs> it's about inclusiveness. It's about reflecting the society in which we live. Okay, let's that. let's talk about thirty-three books now. Normally, when I have people in front of me, I remember what everybody gets up to. Let's talk about the uh, some of the books that you've got. We can't do all all thirty three, Cole, and everything like that. And it, but but I think you talk about the thousand trades of Birmingham. Yeah. Have we lost that? Have we still got it? Or the, has these thousand trades gone? Have we lost two hundred off the one end, and have we put two hundred and fifty on the other end? Do you think we've lost a lot of them, Paul? Unfortunately, okay. and. This comes back to something I think, I know you're as passionate as I'm about, and I'm sure everybody listening is. Manufacturing matters. I'm in the service industries, you're in the service industries, but we all know that somebody has to make some of it. And we're yeah. very good at making things in this region. And it's not that manufacturers want handouts, but they need long-term investment. And we're not good at long-term investments in this country. We're not like Germany that does that well. We need to change. We've got to stop these short-term fixations that we've got in Britain. We've got some great manufacturing companies in Birmingham still. Let me give you an example. Brandauers. Now, Brandauer was set up by two foreigners. Two people that came here, like so many of our businesses. This is another important point. Inclusiveness. Bringing, embracing people. A Swiss and a German. Mr. Brandauer died a broken man because he was interned in the First World War. Mm. Their company used to make steel pens, the pen nibs. Mm. Then what happens? Monsieur Le Biro, pen nibs destroyed. Do you remember the floppy disk, Paul? With the little metal disk in the middle? Yeah, of course. moved on to make <coughs> them. Now, yeah. Brandauers, still in the Hockley district, are making high-precision pressings. Give you another example in the black country. Thompson's, Boilermakers. Yeah, yeah. An offshoot of that now, <coughs> NII, NIAE, sorry, Nuclear Industries, over in Ettingshaw. At the cutting edge of technology, emerging from a boilermaker. So what we've got is we can, we've got adaptability. We've got skills. We've got people that want to make things. We need to do this, Paul, because we have to add value. And part of manufacturing is not only adding value to a product, a, a piece of metal or whatever it is, it's adding value to people and communities. <coughs> and that's yeah. what's happened to so much of Britain, is we've grabbed hold of the value from mining communities, shipbuilding communities, and said, you're not needed no more. We've got to I think, what, I think what's interesting is that, that what's happening around the globe and things like that. I mean, Jaguar Land Rover, fantastically yeah. iconic British brand that will never go there. They took it to China. Chinese didn't want to buy them because they wasn't made in Birmingham. They wasn't made in Castle Bromwich. They wasn't true Jaguars. So we understand that. We understand the value of the brand. What's interesting now, because of the pandemic and the, you know, the unprecedented times we'll be in, we're looking at the supply chain. So the industrial coffin, I think there's a, you know, an upsurgence of the 
of the industrial coffin coming back, the supply chain for the manufacturers. Jaguar Land Rover looking at it. I was, you know, I was talking to Andy Palmer, who's got a supply chain and secure in mainland England, although they're not mass produced and things like that, but he had a backbone of that. The Aston Martin continued, couldn't continue because of COVID, but theoretically because of all the parts and everything else, not just in time, back to traditional manufacturing and things like that. We talked about one of my projects that we might be bringing Austin, Austin cars back into the UK, back into Birmingham to reproduce some of these iconic cars with a modern twist of them being electric. But that's not about me. Today is all about you. So looking about the thousand trades, we've lost a few. Where are we? Are we at 500, you think, 600? Really difficult to say now, Paul. We could okay. still be in the high hundreds because yeah. of the that, that was always Birmingham's strength, the subdivision of the trades. The fast that we weren't dependent on one particular trade. Let's give let's give an example now of the jewelry quarter. Several firms in the jewelry quarter. We've got Fermins on the edge of the jewelry mm. 1655, probably Britain's oldest firm. Again, look at this, Paul. Started by a foreigner, a French Huguenot. Look at what has been given to us by people who have come here from elsewhere. Down the road, Toy Ken and Spencer, the toys, French Huguenots, started 1685. Uh, just up the road, Paterini's, started oh, by an Italian yeah. family. <laughs> you know, just there in the jewelry quarter, on the edge of the jewelry quarter, how important it has been that Birmingham has reached out to us and the world has reached back to us. So, I think we could still be, if we subdivide all these different trades, still be in the high hundreds. Apart from Jaguar Land Rover, though, most of the fact, I would say all of the firms, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, would all be medium or small size. Jaguar Land Rover would be the only large employer, wouldn't it now, Paul? Well, yeah, I think so. You know, there's still quite a few thousand and things like that, but there's yeah. a few other different businesses that are cropping up and stuff like that. There's two or three businesses that I know that are going to have in the next three to five years, three or four thousand employees. Really? We don't have we don't have the twenty odd thousand no, we used to have with no. Dunlops and you know places Lucas. like that. Yeah, Lucas. You know that the, the city was owned by Lucas at one point, wasn't yeah. it? A lot of Birmingham was named after bits of Lucas and things like that. That's stuff. Not you know, another I, example, Paul. That um, the high tech centre. Yeah. At, at by Villa Park, Gurry. What a tremendous example of investment by a German company in cutting tools. Cutting tool on the edge of technology. Sorry, cutting edge technology. Get that right. It's a fantastic yeah. company. There's a, there's, there's a couple of things that we're going to ask. I'm looking at the questions. Yeah. Uh, somebody's asked, will you take us for a tour around the jewellery quarter? I'll be very happy to. Very so active. let's get all, when we can, obviously, you know, we'll get all of our downtown members. Hopefully yeah. it's going to be an afternoon like this. Yeah. Might pop into one or two of the establishments and have, well, a, of course. have a cheeky little uh, little slurp. Uh, and then you'll you'll take us for a tour of the jewellery court and have a walk around. We'll come I'd be delighted to. And then if you talk about the, the Fatterini factory and the, and the building, you look at the building, the building's gorgeous. You know, and it's a nice sort of iconic building, that sort of thing. Um, which reminds me of something like that. People say to me, what, what do you like about Birmingham? What do I need to look at? And, I, and all I say is you need to look up. When you come to Birmingham, look up. Look at the, you know, the cornices. Look at the artwork, the Art Deco, you know, 19th, 18th I, I century buildings. I that people don't just go to Selfridges. They don't just go to the boring shopping centre. They go down to Denny 10. They go to parts of Birmingham that they would not normally see. They go up to Soho House in Handsworth. 
They go up to Aston Hall. They go around the city and see what we've got to offer. I, uh, Amy Deakin's got a question. Fascinating stuff, Carl. Uh, she didn't comment about me, so it's just you, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Uh, <laughs> What's your, what's your legacy going to be, Carl? What, what do you want? What do you want to be known as? Ah, Carl. And, and, and what's our Carl going to be famous for? Writing the hundred books? No, no. I think what I want to be remembered for, if I, if, if I could be so presumptuous, is that I never forgot my roots. Brilliant. I love that. That's answered that one for Amy. Don't forget, anybody else, any questions, things like this. Carl, what... We're in difficult times, unprecedented times, yeah. and I hate that phrase, yeah. I hate that saying. Manufacturing's difficult, you know. In fact, every sector's difficult in the UK now. Europe, globally, and things like that. What can we learn from history? You know, we, we, we've point. had difficult times historically. The Brummies have rolled their sleeves up and got on with things, and that, and that mindset, the Brummy mindset, one of my strap lines, I don't think has gone. But what can we learn? I think a couple of things out. I agree with you about our mindset, but I think we've also got to be careful that we don't see ourselves as different to everybody else. You know, yeah. as Mancunians would say, the Mancunian mindset. Sheffield would say the same. And anywhere else in the world would say the mm. same. So we've got to be careful. Yes, be proud of who we are, but don't set ourselves up as something that's better or worse than anywhere else. When we look back into the past, Paul, we've got to be really careful that we don't look in hindsight. Yeah. Arrogance. Our and look for exact examples from the past. The context of time and place changes. So let's give a, a couple of examples. One, the flu pandemic of 1918-19. Between 50 and 100 million people died across the world. Wow. Right? Now, people might say, well, it's very similar to what's happening today. No, it's not. Number one, because technology's changed. The world is a bigger place. Sorry, it was a bigger place then, it's a smaller place now. Number yeah. two, we know a lot more about viruses. We're much more advanced medicinally and technologically than where we were. But what can we learn is that people matter. That's the key. People matter. And mm. governments acted very slowly in 1918. The war was ending, they were focused on the war. No real... Orders were sent from the government to local government about what they do. And by the time they reacted in 1919, when there was a second wave, they said, don't have large gatherings. It was too late. It was all over. Let's look at the 1930s, the mass unemployment of 30s. What's missing again there? A lack of investment in people and communities. I think the lessons to learn from the past, Paul, for me, mm -hmm. is not exact examples, as I've said, but it's about the need to value people, to value communities, and above all, to value working class communities because mm. they have been devalued, undervalued for too long. And we need to give pride and respect to those communities because they were full of pride and full of respect and had status because of the work that they did. And what we've seen over the last 70, 80 years is that the Southeast has sucked in the power economically that had drifted away a little bit, only a bit, during the Industrial Revolution. Now they've sucked it back. We need to have independent local governments, in my opinion. And the only way you're ever going to get that, Paul, and this is where I'm a municipalist, I, I know you said, watch out, love that there, term, Paul. Love that term, I'm yeah, a municipalist, yeah. I believe that the only way 
that local government can work properly for the well-being and welfare of all of its people, like George Dawson, the great preacher said in the 19th century, is if it owns all the facilities for the welfare and well-being. Our Indeed. own water supply, our own gas supply, make money from them and spend it locally. What we have got, though, um, is Andy Street now, haven't we? And, 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 and I think he's got quite a good CEO running the combined authority. <laughs> Won't go too much into that, obviously. Said. But, I, but what we have got, we've got a, a, a politician that's from the city that represents the city, that he's dragging some of that money back, yeah. dragging some of the... But it's know, all the, handouts from London, Paul. What we should be in charge of is our own income, that we should yeah. be generating it ourselves. We had our own bank when me and you were growing up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we can start doing some things like this, and I think we can start manufacturing. I think we can start bringing some of the, you know, some of the wealth back into the region. I think we're on the turn, but I think we've got quite a long way to go and all that. What I'm going to do now is just uh, Matthew Till, who you might not know works at BCU. Matthew Till is a Warsaw lad, strongest black country accent you could possibly add. Went to Oxford University, Oxford graduated Oxford University with first class honours. Absolute gentleman guy has said, does the panel agree that it's difficult to break the barriers, perceived or real, that the Boston accent uh, <laughs> that we have, you know, that may not be favoured by business leaders or political uh, politicians, you know, that don't speak our accent. Does that accent hold us back, do you think? Yes, unfortunately it does. What is it about, and I'm not saying Scottish, Welsh or Irish society, but English society, where we are judged not on what we say, but the sound of our voice. Yeah, I've had it yeah. all my public career. Oh, you don't really talk like that, you put it on. No, I don't. This is how I talk. This is who I am. This mm. is who I am. Oh, you make money from your accents. Excuse me, I'd have made a lot more money if I hadn't got a probably accent. But... This prejudice, this English obsession with the sound of a voice. Judge me what's in there. I don't Judge know. Me what I, comes out of my soul. Not I don't have. I don't have a problem. Like. I don't have a problem with our accent. So we're doing no. with that one. The, uh, the the only thing that I might have a problem with Matt Tilly is unfortunately he's a Walsall fan. But let's let's no, not do that because support your local team. Agreed, but we're still one nil to the Blues and the, against the Reds anyway. And then uh, Matthew Jones, uh, who runs a training provider, and he's done a brilliant job during lockdown. I think, I don't know how many tens of thousands he's given away for people to upskill during lockdown and things like that. So he's Oxbridge Home Learning. He, he wants to make the comment, my mum tuned into your radio show without fail every week from time to time. You know, thanks for everything you've done for Birmingham. That's Question that. is, if you could make one change to Birmingham right now, and, and let's take it a little bit further, if you had a magic wand, if you could wave that wand over Birmingham and make one change, what would that be, Carl? Eradicate poverty. And, uh, and have we got poverty in Birmingham? Yes. Yeah, we have. Exactly. We have. You're coming back to the point about universities and the dis reaching out to disadvantaged communities, eradicate mm. that. We should not have disadvantaged communities. People should not be at a disadvantage because of where they come from, the sound of their voice, the colour of their skin, their hairstyle, whatever it might be. We have to eradicate prejudice and poverty. And then let's raise the point about charities. You know, we've both done, uh, done quite a bit for charities, haven't we? Your yeah. passion for charities, and you've been working a lot longer and a lot harder than I have for charities. What drives you for the charities? Just that mindset of, of settling things, 
getting the equilibrium, getting it right, make sure it's a level playing field. Uh, yeah, and, and it's also about working for me. I haven't been able to do so much the last few years because of family commitments with my mum, mm. seriously, etc. But yeah. before, I used to be out at least once a week, working with local groups, communities and charities. For, and the reason for that was when I first started out, I was asked to compare the big events. I'm not saying who, why, what, where for. Yeah. And we filled this huge venue. And I did it for nothing. Quite Obviously, I wouldn't charge. But the next year, they paid a celebrity £20,000 to do what I'd done. Yeah. For nothing. And I thought, I won't work for those big charities again. Mm. I won't do it. I will work with, with, not for, work with local groups. So it was, I remember one occasion, we gave a talk for the Darleston Fellowship of the Disabled. And I forget the chap's name, forgive me for that. But it's going back in a few years. And he sat at Darlow Library for weeks selling the tickets for this event. And we held it at the school. And it was, we raised about seven or eight hundred pounds. That was more fulfilling to mm, me. Yeah. Uh, another occasion, the same school, um, we, we took, we managed to raise funds to take the youngsters overnight and back the next night to the First World War trenches by wipers, equally. Oh, yeah. yeah you know? I, 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 so for me, it was about local groups, yeah. local charities, grassroots, grassroots. And that phone ringing, it might have been another booking. But what I will, I'll ask you, We on the 26th of uh, November, yeah. all being well, we've got uh, the City of Birmingham Business Awards. But I can ask you, and it's called Britannia, it is our brand, and it's going to be called Birmingham, because it's going to be a Bromley twist. If I can ask you to say a few words at that event, yeah, that'll be really good. Yeah, I'll start and I'll hand over to you, and, and I think we'll, uh, people will enjoy that. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, I'm just going to say something quickly. We haven't had the phone ring of an afternoon throughout the <laughs> lockdown. It's about to think it twice. <laughs> Do you know what it is? It's somebody that's sitting listening to this. Somebody's listening to this and they go in, they've got your own number. We'll, we'll phone this every 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes on the air. And, call past and I think uh, Petro makes a good point. This is why Eddie Hughes and Jess Phillips are great advocates for Bromley Parliament. They're busted. So this boss, this boss team's going to follow us around. Imagine social media is going to go a little bit lively this afternoon. Things like that. Now, right, let's go back. Yeah. Let's talk about something that we uh, that's been mentioned, you know, about the Eagle and Ton and things like that. Let's talk about some of Birmingham's famous pubs. So when I started working in the market, we used to go into the market tavern, yeah. the Toriador, yeah. um, and a couple of other people and uh, places like that. We, you know, and I, and I was far too young, barra boy and things like that, but you did a day's work and you'd be yeah. getting a point. It tasted awful, but it was, <laughs> it, was <laughs> a thing, it was a thing to do. You're working like a man, so you'd have to drink like a man. And I'd, I'd, I think I'd have half of something and then I'd... It'd be mild in them days, Paul. It would be mild. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely mild. Was, I think it was bitter, actually. Or something oh. like that. Yeah, wide, warm, everything. Tell me about some of our famous pubs. We've got one of the oldest pubs in the country, haven't we? Or certainly in the Midlands, in Digworth. Yeah, well, first of all, it's Derry Thames. So I've got to, I, I, I want to pick a lot of... Passionate about Derry Thames, uh, uh, yeah. The name of Derry Thames is disappearing. And now Digworth has spread. Yes, great. But Digworth stops at the River Ray. Yeah. The old, the old line of the River Ray by the little bull's head. Even people talking about Camp Hill now as, as Digworth. And what we do when we take away those old names, it's not me being pedantic. It's I've had people who grew up in Derry Town saying, Carl, I feel like my history's been snatched away and people call it 
Bigwood. Yeah, the old crown, though, don't forget, it hasn't always been a pub. It was originally a guild house. Was and, it? Okay. Yes, in the later Middle Ages. Not 1368, as we always think, which is on the, the wall, but about 1490. Because of the, when it was refurbished, and a huge sum was spent by a wonderful Irish family, the Brennans on it, uh, to save it for us. They had to take dendrology, samples of the wood, late 15th century. The lad in the lane in Erdington is also really old. So <clears throat> we're so fortunate that we've got a few late medieval Tudor buildings that have survived in Birmingham. Uh, another one from a similar period, Stratford House at the top of Camp Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Places like Blake's Hall, wonder. We're very lucky that it survived. The Golden Lion, coming back to the point about the Eagle and Sun, the Golden Lion, going mm. to Rack and Ruin in Cannon Hill Park, should be brought back to Denton. I think so, yeah. So we've got lots of pub. I think we're losing the small backstreet pub. Mm. My favourite was the White Swan in Bradford Street. Uh, <coughs> yeah, sports, yeah. lovely bar, beautiful bar, small smoke room at the back, as we used to call it. Another great pub, high, really, the, the, the pier, the high, the, the classic Birmingham pubs would be the, the Barton Arms. Brilliant, yeah. In, in Aston. But the small local pubs, those are the ones, for me, I, I, I like that, the atmosphere of them. So if my history serves me right, the the Hippodrome used to be by the Barton Arms, didn't it? Or it was a the Aston Hippodrome. Yeah, the Aston Hippodrome. And then we'd had some quite a few famous people that had performed, yeah. and they came into the Barton Arms and signed the wall, didn't they? Well, a great friend of mine, a fellow photographer, Teddy Weir, has been dead mm. many years, a wonderful bloke, Teddy was, and he lent me a, a, gave me a copy of a photo of Laurel and Hardy yeah, that's what on I was the corner mention. outside the Barton's, ready to go back across the road to the Aston Hip for another performance. Incredible, isn't it? And they, and all of these people sign the wall and, and things like that. Um, <laughs> Emma Love, let's not forget the Woodman Blues Pub. Okay, oh. we'll give you that one, Emma. Lovely pub. Uh, really important as well because the Woodman is the last of the Italian quarter of Birmingham. Okay. So let's... Let's do two things, Carl. Let's go back and let's have a, me and you have a drink in each one of these pubs. <laughs> to reminisce. But what I want to ask you now is Birmingham is such a diverse, you know, a, 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 a population. We, I grew up on Ballsley Green, you know, with Hindus, with Sikhs, with Muslims, Jamaican family and everything like that. And we all integrated really well. Birmingham was built on the back of different nationalities and different people. Give us a little bit of a spin about that. You mentioned the Irish, you mentioned the, you know, how good they had been to the city and what they've done and everything else like that. Just have, let's have a whirlwind tour around the world. Who built but, Birmingham? First of all, it's very important to bear in mind that for hundreds of years, Birmingham was a very much an English city. Yeah. And was very much a Warwickshire English city. The vast okay. majority of people that moved here were like my ancestors on the Chin side from nearby villages. As Birmingham grew in the 19th century, it then became a magnet for further afield. So we had Scots, Welsh, Irish, particularly from Roscommon, Mayo, Galway, and also Dublin. Okay. We had a small Italian community that settled right by where Emma was talking about. I think, sorry, Emma, if I've got your name wrong there, uh, but by the Woodman. 
and they were from the Camino Valley, which is now in Lazio, but between Naples and Rome. They were yeah. from the communes of Atino and Gallinaro and the uh, and Pichinisco. Intermarried, tightly connected, same extended family network, really, of the Irish. People coming from villages like Tolskinora in Roscommon, connecting with each other, looking after each other when they got here. The same as my English ancestors would have done, coming in from villages like Rowington. You, when you're young, you settle amongst those who are similar to you. And that's the pattern of migration for most of the peoples who have come to Birmingham. The Jews who were coming in the later 19th century were slightly different in that they were escaping the pogroms in the mm. Russian Empire, the attacks on them. Birmingham didn't have a big Jewish community and it was split for many years between wealthier German Jews who settled in Edgbaston and Ashkenazi Jews, uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews who had fled the pogroms. Yeah. We also had, from the 1930s, one of the first communities from outside Europe settling in Birmingham, the Yemeni community. Very important, Paul. They've been overlooked for too long and they shouldn't be overlooked. They have made a major contribution to Birmingham. They've hidden their light under a bushel and it's up to us, all of us, to draw it out. The first, I'm going to hope I pronounce this correctly and please anybody who's Muslim, forgive me if I mispronounce it. The first, first Zawaya, the first prayer house in Birmingham was actually in a house that Yemeni's families had bought in Edward Road in Borsal Heath. Well, okay. And the Yemenis were Lashkars. They were merchant seamen, very brave men. Because of racism, unfortunately, they were always down in the holes. So when the Japanese attacked, they died first. Other Lashkars were Bengalis, Bangladesh today, nearly all from Silet in the north. Also Kashmiris, from Azad Kashmir, as we would now call it, from Mirpur, from Dajjal, from, again, Please forgive me for me my, any mis mispronunciations. Hadrabad, Chakswari, all by the, the Mangladam. Lots of people coming here as well from the Swat Valley and Pashtuns who had served with the British Army. Mm. Sikhs who were coming from around the Jalunda district. Not Jalunda itself, but the district, the towns and villages around Jalunda. Hindus from the same district in the Punjab. So the first people from outside Europe that settled in numbers in Birmingham after the First World War, had fought or worked for the British Army or Merchant Navy, as did the first African Caribbean men, who yeah. had 5,000, 5,000 joined the RAF. Without Jamaican bauxite, how would we have gone on with aluminium? Without West Indian men and women who answered the call, along with the Irish and others after the war, to rebuild Birmingham, where would we be? And so many of these men and women were skilled when they got here, but couldn't get skilled jobs. But what would we have done in the National Health Service, in our transport system, without such men and women? So we owe them a great debt. And you're right, Paul, that we, we, we were all together. I fear that one of the problems we're facing in modern Birmingham is that people are becoming separate. Yeah. And yeah. that we need to invest heavily in the ballroom markets, because if not, what's happening in my, I fear, is that the city centre has been turned into an enclave for the wealthy, and that the neighbourhoods are splitting. And instead of us all meeting equally in the boring markets, we're being kept apart. See, I, one of my first jobs was working in the markets. I was a bad boy. It's a ridiculous, like 12, 13 years old. Now I think the, my parents have probably been sent to uh, in front of the magistrate for some of the things there like that. Yeah. I don't think we were quite sweeping chimneys, but we were certainly working in the markets with Dad and that type of stuff. And I think that's where I got my 
my integration, my education, and really the appreciation of the city. 800 years worth of marking. If you look at Edgebaston Street and you look at St. Martin Church, my middle name is Martin and I was named after the church and things like that, which is quite something that I hold on to. The, the, the years, Birmingham was made around the ball ring, wasn't it? Nice. The ball ring market, that's where we were created. We shouldn't forget, we look at the city of Birmingham flag, it's the ball, you know, that sort of stuff. It's a pride and that sort of stuff and that, that's where we go. Um, I think for me, the markets are incredibly important uh, and I think what will happen with the new markets coming through and everything else like that, it's going to move and the markets have moved across the city, haven't they? You know, yeah. from the old Ball Street, they were pushed that way, they've come back, they've gone but back. They were always around where the ball ring is. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be a pessimist because I'm not a pessimistic person, yeah. but the lack of care and thought for our outdoor and indoor traders over the last 75 years has been atrocious. Yeah. And they need to be cherished because we have all traders of all types in the ball ring representing all kinds of rummies. And we all meet there equally. And it needs to be a place that is not only a place for shopping, but of entertainment and of yeah. communal solidarity. I remember when I used to work there, by St Martin Church going up the ramp, there used to be people literally on, on uh, soapboxes yeah. standing there. There was somebody talking about like socialism. There was somebody talking about religion. There was somebody else like that. Yeah. And you'd walk along as a kid. I'd stand and listen to them for a few minutes and think, I don't want to listen to that. And I'd walk... Yeah. Sometimes I've been here a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes listening to that. So these are the people that are educating way before the internet and things like that. So what's interesting is I still go to the, uh, the meat market, the fish market every Saturday that I can. I still go there and buy all of my stuff from there and things like that. There's two or three names that are going up on the list that comment and that do that as well. Di Vernon has made a comment. Now Di is the, the founder and the CEO of Employability UK. I sit there as a patron for that. And we guide people and give them the right mindset to be ready for employment, which is quite interesting. We can talk about mindsets there. What inspiration you were, Carl. Thank you, uh, thank you for everything you do to remind us of a wonderful heritage. The legacy will you see for the uh, 2022 Games. So the Commonwealth Games, let me thank put it in better terms. What's the legacy that the, Common, uh, the Commonwealth Games will do for us? It's really important that mm. very quickly the people who are engage with organising the games, reach out to the peoples of Birmingham. We're not far off it now. Yes, we've had the COVID, we know that, and it's put things back, but we don't want a situation like the City of Culture Bid, which was completely devoid of connection with Brummies. Brummies of all kinds. It's, they've yeah. got to reach out. So if there's going to be a legacy, guys, it has to be the, the ASAP that the Commonwealth Games organisers here reach out to the working class neighbourhoods of Birmingham and make them all feel included, not only, say, in Perry Bar, but in Longbridge in the south, in Windsor Green in the west, in Chardend in the east, across Birmingham, bringing us all together. We had, um, I sat with John Crabtree and uh, spoke to him, who's the chair of the Commonwealth Games, I spoke to him about the charities, the street charities, an international, there's a national and a local charity. Yeah. And I said the Commonwealth Games is an ideal opportunity for us to reshape, permanently support and change for the best, you know, the benefits of some charities. Yeah. He asked me to put a bit of a paper together. So I worked with James Walsh, who's the head of Legacy. We put it together. They've adopted 10 charities. Underneath that, there's 20. And there's a cascade of charities. 
all of these charities have been in, uh, embraced by the games and they're doing that. Ian Reid has been quite a popular uh, panelist for us and things like that. Although he's migrationary and we've definitely got to work on his Scottish accent so he can be a little <laughs> bit more Peaky Blinderish, he's so ingrained in the city and working hard yeah. for the city. So the people I think in the Commonwealth Games are doing well. They're inviting us to do a, a street art festival. They'll support us for that. They're inviting us to do this. There's a lot of opportunity for the Commonwealth Games. But what will it do for us? It will put us on the map globally. It'll bring interest in the city. People will look at what we're doing. People look at us brummies. But I think we've got to get it right. What's the right message that we need to send to the, the, to the world? The message that we need to send is that Birmingham is a welcoming city, an open city, and a city for all. And it is a city worth investing in. But you're right, Paul, we have to get it right. Because if you look at so many of these legacy projects, look, for example, at the, at the football stadium that West Ham now playing. You know, where, what is the real true legacy for the people of the East End? We need to embrace all of the peoples of Birmingham. And I think everybody needs to feel they have a stake in the Commonwealth Games. And that means bringing in community leaders and from all of the communities of Birmingham. We, we need to make sure that, that the leadership reflects the city. Pat, the, the, this is what me and you are going to jump right on this, call. Get ready, right? Come on. Patrick says, this is very insightful webinar, thank you. What does the panel think about the, uh, the, the Birmingham tag, the second city? Oh, right. right. <laughs> right. Can I go first? Can I go first? What a pathetic title. Yeah. Second yeah. city. Why, are we, why do we stand, oh, we're the second city? Who remembers who's second in the FA Cup? Who remembers who comes second in any Olympic Games? What we should be saying, I, I, and I feel this vehemently, is shake off this second city tag. We are Birmingham, second to none. We are the first city in the UK. You know, you know we, are, we are UK central. We are the first city. I, I don't set us up as better than Manchester or Salford or Leeds or Sheffield, Bristol, Norwich. But we should be much more proud of who we are. You don't hear Liverpool say, oh, you know, we used to be the second city, but we'll let Birmingham have it now. If Manchester wants to be the second city, let them get on with it. We are Birmingham. Be proud of who we are. I'm uh, slightly more cheekier, I think, and uh, I say I'm proud. I've got a swagger of being Brummie. I don't know for the fact you have. Carl, listen, we could be talking all afternoon, but we've gone way over our time. Um, we've get, we're still getting questions going. We've still got a lot of people listening to us. I'm going to go do another 10, 15 All minutes. Right, okay. Make sure that people are still happy. Clearly, me and you could be sitting talking all afternoon and night. And I'm I, had, I, I had used to say, I can You were inoculating with a gramophone needle when you were born. <laughs> <laughs> now, let, let, let's pick up on this. You know, let's look at our, our, our position in the UK, in Europe and everything else like that. We are the gateway or could be the gateway. Of, of Europe, of everything else like that. What do we need to do? I'm going to start off by saying we need to increase Birmingham, uh, the, the airport. We need a second runway. We need to be truly an international airport. We need to invest in that. HS2, and I know there's been a couple of comments about HS2. I think investing in infrastructure, and I think is critical, but the infrastructure for me is also the airport. It's getting that runway, an international airport. Let's be China ready as our good friend, James Wong says, let's be China ready. What do you I, think? I remember I was asked this question about 1998. What does Birmingham need to do to be a 21st century city? Infrastructure, number one, I agree with you. 
number two to become a major banking centre again. We're actually becoming that, thanks yep. to Deutsche Bank and other banks in Birmingham. Number three, to be a technological centre. We, we've got a long way to go there. A long mm. way to go. Number four, Paul, and unfortunately, councils of different political complexions have neglected this. We needed to be a media city. Manchester and Salford are the media city now after London. We've lost out there. You know, we've lost the big studios, the ATV studios in town, the BBC, Pebble Mill's gone. We need to address that. We need to look at the media side. We need to look at technology. Mm. We need to make sure that all of our youngsters have opportunities for, the, for education and for achievement. Not necessarily academic achievement, but vocational. Or, and we need to value everybody, every skill. I'm going to, uh, Mersin Studios has been agreed and it's going to take place in Digbeth. Andy's all over that working with Stephen Knight. Also, he's interested is there's another studio that's going to be in all around the NEC, which yeah. I sit on the board of. We've got a lot of interest, a lot of investment and things like that. So we're Good. going to bring that there. But, you know, the media studies that we've got in the city and things like that, the people just dissipate. They go north or they go south. Yeah. All of that's going to come there. The infrastructure of the Commonwealth Games, the, you know, the polishing off, the cleaning up of the city, the point that we're going to go out there, the point that we're going to be in the eye, you know, the centre of the universe. Albeit for a week or two, but I think with people like you, with a mindset, with a legacy, with everything that we do, with a little bit of a brummy swagger, which you're not wholly sold on, but I think we can polish that off. I, mean, I think we can get that back. Now, uh, Emma Love's just going to say, absolutely wonderful, Carl. She thinks you're brilliant and everything else like that. Okay. I think it's the, it's the culture and appreciation society. <laughs> well, listen, I'll tell you what, if you just notice what I've just done, I've had the flipping mouse thing there for all, all I think, oh, that's what's that there? It's myself I've been doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank and you, then, Emma. Uh, uh, Abby Goldie says, an amazing event. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. I'm going to leave you, obviously, as, a, as our guest. I've got to say, I'm absolutely delighted that you've really agreed to come on here. I know how busy you are. You know, and probably during the time you've probably knocked out another two or three chapters of a book. I can see your arms going like that. But I just want to say, Carl, it's, it, it, as it always is to be around, and it's an absolute privilege, you know, you're an inspiration to us. You lead the city, you lead me, you lead everybody else. Just a few moments of your words, pearls of wisdom, and leave you with that, and then we'll say goodbye to all our viewers. First of all, can I thank you and all, everybody listening? I don't see myself in those terms. I yeah. see myself as one of you. We're all together. We're all equal. I, I, I gave my inspiration from the people I belong to. And there are so many inspiring people in this city. And we have to, coming back really to something we said right at the start, Paul, we need to value people. Yeah. We need exactly. to value everybody. Everybody's got a talent. Everybody's got something to give. It's that unlocking that door for the potential. You know that in the roles that you, you've been working through. I'm sure... Everybody that's listening agrees we need to value people and we need to listen and we need to work with and not for. Agreed. Professor Colchin, MBA, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thank, thank you to everybody listening as well, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.